My name is Christopher Peter. Welcome to the Christopher Peter Review. The Christopher Peter Review provides original content discussing salient current events in our political environment, business community, global world, domestic society, and sports and entertainment. In each of the five segments, the focus will always be to center on facts, evidence, and data. The Christopher Peter Podcast is my lead segment that discusses our business community, investing in financial markets, and ideas for growth. The CRC Conversation, another key segment, discusses our public policy and happenings in our political environment. The CRC World discusses global current events that impact us here at home. The CRC Society discusses social issues and topics with a focus on improving our quality of life. Last but not least, CRC Sports will talk about sports, which is one of my favorite subject matters. Please visit www.crcreview.com weekly to experience these five podcast segments that make up the Christopher Peter Review. Welcome to the podcast today. Hope all is well. There are few things guaranteed in life. One of those things is change. Each day we change. Each day the world around us changes. For the better or for the worst. We just have to make the best of that change or be the catalyst for the change we want to see in our world. The biggest driver of change in society and our economy is really the development of new technology. Especially technology that disrupts our daily routines, our business practices, and how we view the limits of productivity. In the entertainment space, the biggest disruptor to how we experience digital entertainment in recent times is streaming technology. Many of us remember how cable expanded the menu for what people could choose to watch. Gave households a wider selection of content to experience and channels built around specific themes. For instance, if you are a fan of sports you have the option of watching 24-7 coverage of all things sports on one of the ESPN or Fox Sports channels. If you are a fan of horror or the paranormal, you can watch the science fiction channel better known as sci-fi. A disruption from the ABC, NBC, and CBS limited menu. Now, we have streaming ingrained into our daily lives where we can control when we watch our favorite content and can create our own list of shows, movies, or specials to watch. Streaming offers us convenience and choice. While cable broadened the options, you still were limited to watching content when the network scheduled broadcast. Maybe your show moves from 8 at night to 5 in the afternoon putting it right in the midst of your afternoon commute. Then you hope there was a repeat broadcast. Now, streaming allows us to add shows to our queues and watch it when convenient. A main driver for streaming was convenience. But also a value proposition. Netflix put Blockbuster out of business by understanding that people would rather have movies delivered to their homes rather than waiting in line and hoping a copy of the movie they wanted to see was available. We all remember the feeling of getting to a Blockbuster and not finding what we came for and having to peruse the aisles for a consolation option. Then Netflix and other early adopters decided to take on the networks and cable companies with the streaming model that allowed people to watch movies, shows, and other content when they wanted, where they wanted, and how they wanted. Disney Plus joined the market as well as other popular options from content producers and networks as well. For the consumers, the initial rise of streaming provided a considerable value compared to traditional cable. The obvious non-monetary value is being able to watch something at your leisure and not having to remember to record or DVR it. Remember having to do that when you were out when your favorite show or sporting event was going to happen at the same time. The monetary value was in the fact that initially streaming was much cheaper. Young professionals found it unreasonable to continue having to strategically negotiate with cable companies to protect their current rate from increasing, when they simply could pay less for streaming, which had the shows or content they watched. Thus the cord-cutting trend happened. People started cancelling cable service and only purchasing internet in favor of streaming services or a shared streaming service login. 
many free riders for people who simply allow others to access their accounts with their own profiles. Although, the purchase of their own service would be cheaper than a cable bill. Again change is always a thing in life. And what is sometimes affordable becomes less affordable when market dynamics change. Sometimes what was once thought to be more expensive is less expensive as providers adapt to the same changing market dynamics. As streaming services started to come online, many associated with networks or studios owned content that was available on competing services, which required them to restrict viewership to their own channels. Otherwise, there is less of a commercial appeal. Hard to convince consumers to pay a fee for something already on Netflix. So if you add up all the streaming service fees needed to match the access you had with cable, the sum will probably exceed the current rate of a comparable cable television package. Unless, of course, you share passwords and access. In that case, Netflix decided it would not shut down service. Rather it will start charging additional user fees in order to cover the cost of the additional users. In all fairness, Netflix does have a legitimate interest in ensuring that all people who access their platform actually pay for service. A less legitimate cost increase seems to be the one being debated inside of Amazon. In recent articles from reporters who cover the space, Amazon is considering raising the cost of Prime Video if users want to avoid commercials. Commercial buyers want access to viewers on these platforms and it seems like Amazon will consider raising the cost so they can benefit from both sides. As I aforementioned, some things that were once affordable can become more expensive over time. From the business side of the streaming market, the service providers of streaming services have not realized great profitability as one might think. Sure these services are highly profitable. But they require large expenses in terms of infrastructure to support the delivery and storage of content. Large expenses in content production and content licensing to ensure that there is enough new content available to retain consumers. For instance, Disney Plus is highly popular and has some amazing content generated specifically for streaming. Yet Disney has not reached profitability on a quarterly and annual basis, meaning that other divisions are funding the shortfalls for the streaming division. Yet, a company like Disney understands that other divisions are impacted by the cord-cutting movement and will also need to rely more on streaming than they currently do now. Recent data shows that the number of people with access to ESPN continues to diminish as more households cancel cable plans. Therefore, it is not surprising that ESPN leadership is preparing for an eventual transition to a streaming model, where it relies more on ESPN+. So what we are seeing is consumers fleeing a service model that has become less affordable over time for a streaming industry that appears to be more cost-conscious. But as the market grows and subscriptions continue to rise, but at a slower rate, streaming services are closing that value gap. That is expected. You want to grow the market by positioning the service as affordable to attract early adopters on through to late adopters. Once the shift matures enough where consumers do not think it is beneficial to go back to cable, but will still be susceptible to the argument that you already paid this much for cable, why not pay for streaming? The whole portion of the pocketbook approach. I think cable companies are adapting to what is an inevitable outcome but they will not go the way of Blockbuster. The cable infrastructure becomes too cost prohibitive to maintain. But the critical service that streaming requires that cable providers are essential for is internet access. Like when you purchase an electric car, there really is not as big of a reduction in fossil fuel usage as fossil fuel is used for the production of electricity. The internet portion of your cable package is still required for streaming. Companies like Comcast's Xfinity found ways to embrace streaming in its product offerings. Comcast is America's largest cable company, so it has a lot at stake. Other services are also realizing the need to connect customers to popular streaming apps. I believe a company like Comcast will obviously overcome this technology disruption. For one they already own a streaming company in Peacock. 
but their cable service has also been adapted to streaming as well and compatibility with popular streaming services. Companies like Verizon's Fios will be able to adapt as well. But I think we will see some service providers struggle if they are not able to offset losses or revenue declines. We see Major League Baseball already being impacted by Bally Sports struggling to meet their required payments because their customer base is dwindling without streaming options. So we talked about the consumer impact. Consumers initially benefited from the transition to streaming by initially reducing their entertainment bills for a while and being able to enjoy entertainment on their terms rather than a rigid schedule. Providers benefited creating a new industry sector by disrupting the cash cows in the cable television market. Now, what is the impact on investors? Investors are making a good amount of returns investing in Netflix and entertainment companies with streaming services or conglomerates also with streaming services. I would think it is not a good time to invest in companies that are built around cable service as their main draw. Not financial advice. But, their core revenue source will be shrinking, which is not what you are looking for in a company to invest in. Streaming is how people prefer to experience entertainment content. That is reality. In a way, we can admit that it would be cheaper to simply keep the cable bill compared to the collective cost of subscribing to all the popular service options. But times change. Companies that adapt early will survive in some form or even thrive. Others will fail. This week was quite the strange week for those of us who live in the northeastern part of the United States. For those who are unaware, millions of Americans were impacted by smoke generated by wildfires burning out of control in our neighbor above us. Yes, we can blame Canada on this one. Our friends to the north are experiencing a troubling wildfire season in which they have requested and received assistance to address over 400 wildfires that are generating enough smoke to impact the quality of life miles and miles away. Or kilometers and kilometers away. For those in New York, some had to resort to bringing back out those masks stored once the return to normalcy occurred. Just for a brief return to unnormalcy for almost two days. The result of the smoke was the cancellations of flights, sporting events, and restricted travel and movement for millions of Americans. On one of the daily news broadcasts, the anchors warned that being out in the smoke could result in the inhalation of smoke equivalent to smoking a half-pack of cigarettes. A staggering comparison when you think of it. For all those people who decided to quit smoking during this time, they still got their dose minus the nicotine. Not taking quitting smoking lightly. A topic that will be part of a future episode. I am sure there are plenty of times when Canada may be impacted by our West Coast wildfire season. So we cannot complain too much. For a long time they were the neighbor that was not a source of problems, like our friend to the south. For two days, I guess we can tolerate getting temporary smoke from the north and illegal migrants from the south, which is far more troublesome. The situation will undoubtedly cause people to sound the alarm of climate change. But this may just be a situation of poor forestry management. I remember listening to a talk during a conference many years ago in which the speaker discussed how wildfire management is executed and how these events are naturally occurring as well. The need to remove certain brush and trees at risk of fueling a wildfire. Sounded like a common sense idea, but I could understand the challenge of having so many tree huggers that hold the radical view that no tree should be chopped down. So how can we potentially protect against wildfires that occur from the random strike of lightning from a storm outside of our control? I know there are some people who will argue that if we cut down our fossil fuels that there will be less storms and less occurrences. But we do not know if that is true or even possible at this point. Thunderstorms are a natural occurrence caused by the convergence of two weather fronts. Something I learned in a meteorology class. One that I found very interesting yet did not count towards my major. Only my term bill. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that we should be more sustainable-minded in our daily lives and economic production. 
but I do not agree with radical approaches that create real harm or ones where the economic harm may outweigh any benefit, real or perceived. Not willing to increase the energy cost to those on fixed incomes or impoverished. Hate to see the elderly struggling in areas that ban plastic bags. Not every event should be a catalyst for radical action. That is not good public policy. We should not go to war every time an enemy comes too close to our aircrafts or ships. There is a need to determine the gravity of the situation and whether it is an outlier or not. Some states are going after gas heating and gas stoves rather than working to find innovations to better manage the potential emissions. We need more balanced approaches. Like the situation where there are too many plastic bags. The politicians simply went and banned the bags without regard to the impact. Many entrepreneurs came out with better solutions of how to remove plastic from our oceans, beaches, and other areas to repurpose it for other commercial uses. There should have been somewhat of a transition instead of an outright ban. Some stores can up with providing reusable bags that are the same size and look of a plastic bag that are recyclable. During my trip to a ShopRite in New Jersey, I gladly used it and continue to use them in other areas I may find myself. A balanced solution rather than a knee-jerk ban. Hopefully, the two days of smoke will not serve as a catalyst for more reckless policies. Rather both American and Canadian fire management personnel should coordinate the commonalities of what works to manage wildfires so both nations can reduce the cost and consequence of their respective wildfire seasons. Welcome to the CRC Conversation on the Christopher Peter Review, where we discuss leading current events impacting our public policy and the happenings in our political system. Let us start with a story that will dominate the headlines for the next few weeks. This week former President Trump received his second indictment, but first federal indictment. The Republican frontrunner was formally charged with 37 felonies related to the classified document scandal that resulted in an FBI raid of his residence in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. The former president maintains strong support by a base that understands that he is a lightning rod for unfair criticism and politically biased attacks. But is there a point where his base and other Republican voters need to understand that this is a great level of baggage for a nominee to carry into a general election? This is a constant uncomfortable area to navigate because I believe all people, regardless of whether you are a Trump supporter or anti-Trumper, know and understand that there is a level of partisan bias in attacks on the former president. So there is reasonable doubt to the credibility of the charges. In legal matters, there is an important consideration of precedents that must be factored in. Because something may be technically against the law but precedent shows that law enforcement and the justice system do not view the infraction as something that should face prosecution or rise to the level of serious crime. In regard to the charges in New York, there are reports that the prosecution is taking a serious unprecedented approach in elevating incidents that are normally misdemeanors at best to the level of felony, which is inappropriate. The justice system is supposed to be blind and the prosecution should not be able to change their approach simply because of the name of their target and should not be able to retroactively change the statutes to fit the attack. At the same time, Republican voters should consider the judgment factor as President Trump does show a blatant disregard for sound decision-making. While one might believe he is being wrongly charged for actions that others have done and are not getting the same attention to or were spared due to politics, I think you have to consider whether this reflects on his ability to make sound decisions if he returns to the White House. Just like I said during Hillary Clinton's last run, I do not believe voters should simply choose someone because the candidate feels that they deserve the office. That candidate needs to make a case for why he or she can do better than the field. Right now, Trump is playing the victim card, while petulantly attacking fellow Republicans. He has yet to make a real argument for why he should be voted back in and what he will do if he returns to office. 
There really is no substantive argument for a Trump return to office when you consider that there are others in the Republican field that have a lot to offer without the controversial temperament and erratic behaviors. There is no denying that Trump was effective policy-wise for the most part. Especially compared to Biden, who is fledgling. But I think voters are not going to decide to put a candidate back in power simply because of voter regret from 2020 or because being sympathetic to the argument that he is constantly wronged. There must be a valid new case for the office. I agree. There are many people out there who feel validated in their view that Biden was not fit for the office of the President of the United States. But there are plenty of people who also feel that Trump may not be the right person either. Ironically, if he would have won in 2020, the conversation would be concerning the end of Trump's political career rather than the potential return to office. If we take a moment to see the forest through the trees, we should see that Republicans have viable options outside of Trump. DeSantis is polling strong against potential Democrats. On the other hand, the pipeline for Democrats continues to be weak. Biden will win the nomination and it may be a coin toss if he can beat Trump. And he would struggle to win against DeSantis, if Trump supporters are not able to set aside their Trump loyalty. Republicans can help America turn the page with nominating a candidate that is able to deliver the results of Trump without the circus. Trump was an effective president for the most part. I think Americans want to be able to feel good about what is going on and who is leading at the same time. There is a need to turn the page on what is a troubling moment in our timeline. Joe Biden is dropping the ball in so many important policy arenas and this should be concerning for all Americans. While there is always the usual Democrats defending their Democrat politicians and Republicans supporting their Republican politicians, Biden is struggling to appease any group. I am not sure any side wanted to see the world deteriorating in separate factions and alliances with competing interests. Not sure either side wanted an economy so challenged that we have to hold out hope for any good news even if we are ignoring the broader context. I am not sure anyone really wants to see our president fall down steps numerous times or barely be able to perform functions that are expected of a person in their full capacity. Let alone the president of the United States. I always felt that age is just a number. That the record, performance, ideas, and proven judgment are of far more importance in judging the suitability of candidates for political office. I do not feel that strongly about that anymore. I do think health and ability are now reasonable considerations. The public performances of Joe Biden are quite troubling. From a person who has lived in areas close to his congressional districts, there is a clear difference in the Biden of the past with the current individual running the highest office in the land. I do think it is troubling to see our president shaking phantom hands and falling down frequently. If that is what is done in public, I have to wonder what is occurring behind the scenes. Because public events are usually very scripted and orchestrated. So what is it like behind the scenes? Setting aside his potential diminishing capacity. His record as president is not appealing. I never thought he had the proper judgment, record, or candidate platform to be elevated to the highest office in the land. And I think we see that America was right to look for other candidates in the past. We are grasping at straws to be positive. Sure the stock market has finally risen. Let's see if it sustains. There is a lot of volatility because there is a constant level of uncertainty and a general feeling like a cliff is coming. So we cannot obsess over one positive moment. The recent rally is probably due to the federal government avoiding the potential default by reaching an agreement days before the projected default date. Seemed like there really could have been a prolonged battle that led to the first impactful default in our history. So understandably investors would be relieved afterwards there still seems to be some level of potential future strife. We hope to avoid a recession and just have stagnation, which is not something indicative of a desirable economy. I think we are trying to make lemonade out of lemons. 
but we need to acknowledge we should have never been in this situation in the first place. Moving on to the debt deal. Many people felt that the debate over the debt ceiling was not the proper forum for arguing for changing how we spend. The debt limit involves whether the federal government has the authority to increase the issuance of new liability to fund the annual federal deficits. A better forum would be the annual budget debate, where the actual spending levels are determined and when decisions can be made that will have real impact on the level of federal spending that occurs. At the same time, good debt management requires one to address the factors that caused you to reach your credit limit or you will continually be in need of credit limit increases. There is a time and place for everything. But sometimes the most uncomfortable of conversations must be had even in the most inopportune environments. To some degree, I agree that the debt ceiling and spending debate should be separated. But I do think that it is strategically important to have one event set up future events in the world of politics. In negotiations, you need points of leverage to actuate change. For instance, when you negotiate large purchases like a house or a new car, it is easier to do so when you are not in desperate need of either one. Because you may provide a point of leverage for the other party. If someone knows you need to sell your home or you need a new car to commute to your job, there are reasons for them to be more firm in their stance. While it may appear uncooperative, they maximize their outcomes if they know that you cannot walk away as easily. So I believe that the debt ceiling provided a natural point of leverage for Republicans to connect the need for increasing the nation's credit limit with the need to address spending. Politically savvy. Maybe not the most practical because there was a point where the leverage could turn if an actual default occurred. I understand that many fiscal conservatives are not happy with the deal because there was no real commitment to cut anything. Simply to reduce the trajectory of the growth in spend. In exchange for pushing any debt limit debate until after the presidential election. I do think there were some nice wins for the Republicans and Americans. Including the reducing and diverting funds intended to weaponize the Internal Revenue Service. I get the need to become more assertive in prosecuting tax cheats. But the IRS having new potentially armed agents is a little too far. Are we taking potential tax filing mistakes more seriously than murders and violent crimes when you consider enforcement? The issue of spending was never going to be resolved in the debt ceiling debate. Too little time and too much to do. We do need a broader discussion on our national debt, but it will need to be one that actually involves both spending and revenues, which will make both sides uncomfortable. Finally, a common theme in our presidential elections is the standing of America on the world stage, where Democratic candidates believe their candidates do a better job of protecting our reputations and Republicans counter that their candidates are stronger on the issues that impact Americans the most. We clearly have reason to question how seriously the world is taking our current leadership, when we see what appears to be blatant actions directly in the face of America. Not that long ago, Biden officials called out how assertively Chinese officials disregarded our diplomatic efforts. Now, we see that they are blatantly building a base in Cuba to what many believe will serve as a spy platform to monitor our communication and actions. There is a clear challenge of America's standing on the world stage and it seems like we are losing ground rather than leading the way. Is America leading from behind or simply falling behind? Progressives were uncomfortable with the America first foreign policy because they seemed to think it was too aggressive. Although, it kept our enemies in line and maintained world peace. Now, we see that our enemies really believe that they have a chance to challenge our standing and fill the void in areas where we pull back or lack clear engagement. It was clear that even our allies did not fully respect our views on the threat of Russia. After we recklessly pulled out of Afghanistan and left many of them to hold the bag as the Taliban took control quickly before they could evacuate, I could understand them being a little standoffish. We were not a great partner and clearly did not handle the event well. I am not sure we are really managing the situation well now, 
as we are still defaulting to foreign leaders who are spending our aid and using our weapons without even filling us in apparently. As our enemies see that we cannot coordinate well with our allies, cannot lead an effective response to threats, they may become more emboldened to pursue their own invasions, infringements, and other violations. Ironically, the Obama administration was praised for its policy shifts with Cuba, who is now providing land to our enemy, in the same fashion that it worked with the USSR. Our perceived weakness and indecision is changing the world for the worse. Our foreign policy is not working. Recently, I saw that increasing crime in our large cities may be starting to reduce. A great sign if it truly is a sustainable reduction and not just a temporary dip. Or a statistical valley before the next rise. And hopefully not just a result of a change in how crimes are reported, which is how past leaders maintain the appearance of safer communities. In the not-so-distant past, there was a change in how crimes were reported to focus on the incident. For instance, if there was a mass shooting, it would be reported as one murder with a number of victims rather than a murder for each victim. Makes a difference in how one perceives the safety of their community. And how a political candidate can frame the effectiveness of their policies. And we know that we need to be careful when we read these articles because of the political biases. Depending on where their political leanings fall, they may accentuate or play down the statistics to fit narratives. So what might just be a dip will be made to appear as a cataclysmic shift in behavior. The reason I have concern is because I am not sure that there is a real shift in our general attitudes that will lead to a reduction in criminal actions. While we want to attribute as much as we possibly can on COVID, we must also consider that people are not as good as we want to paint them as we hope them to be. But I do think that some of the progress can be attributed to the realization by some local leaders that maybe it was a mistake to embrace the defund the police sentiment, or restrict law enforcement when the real need was to improve accountability and appropriateness in procedures and protocol. Many people were appalled by what we saw on the George Floyd video. But we were equally appalled by what we saw in response in regards to the looting. And more appalled by what we saw in areas that defunded their police department. I believe it was common sense, even in the midst of the highly emotional environment, for the response to be for communities to review what their standards are for law enforcement and what their definition of excessive really is and if they have a real process of holding violators accountable for crossing the line. I do not think any reasonable person wanted to see less police patrolling the streets. Because the idea that criminals exist is not a right-wing conspiracy, but a reality for many communities. We should still want the victims of crimes to be able to call the police and get a timely response. The pulling back of law enforcement combined with the manufactured anger helped to show the lack of human decency that existed in many of our communities, which was no longer deterred because there was no fear of getting caught anymore. The presence and patrolling of law enforcement is an important deterrent to crime. Something we could have predicted. In many communities, we see people run stop signs and speed in residential areas if there is perceived to be no chance of getting ticketed. People might understand that they should not do bad behavior, but the only real deterrent is the fear of getting caught and that is what was removed. The real cost of the scaling back of law enforcement was not just the considerable cost borne by the victims, who were further victimized by the lack of justice, but also communities who saw economic activity reduced and businesses fled. People do not want to be associated with or exposed to crime. There is an economic effect that leaders need to consider. So I hope that part of the progress was the realization that our communities, large or small, need effective law enforcement. We need police that are equipped to properly handle any threat. And trained to protect and serve all people regardless of demographics and apprehend the worst in our society in a manner consistent with our constitutional expectations. We the people also play an important part. We need to accept the fact that part of the path towards safer communities and law and order falls onto our shoulders as well. We must accept the responsibility to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. 
The debate over our declining social morals always revolves around big issues, but sometimes the simple idea of respecting the rights and safety of others can help maintain human decency. We must accept the responsibility to not harm the rights, safety, and welfare of those around us when we exercise our freedoms, civil liberties, and choice. Because once you do you create situations where your rights can be limited to accommodate the need to make others whole. For instance, we see people walk dogs around neighbors. But there is always that negligent person who does not curb or leash their dog. So local rules will need to be implemented to inflict compensation to victims when negligent individuals infringe on the rights of others. While we want to always claim freedom or our right to do whatever we want, we need to realize that rules and regulations are the result of not being accountable for the externalities for these choices. Just because you think you have a good reason to do something, does not mean it is a good idea. Should people have to think about who could potentially be impacted by their behaviors or choices? Yes. That is what being an adult is. Right? We all are emotional people. All are born with that ideal of self-determination and free will. But we also have to understand there are times to consider the impact of our choices before we do something. Some feel it is easier asking for forgiveness than permission. Sometimes not. That is why we might consult with neighbors before doing something that might infringe on their enjoyment of their property. Easier to negotiate a solution than battle someone in court and potentially lose. Even in the midst of events that evoke strong emotions, we still have the responsibility for our responses to these events. Emotions are commonly used to excuse bad behavior, but they do not exonerate people completely. We have the responsibility to control our response to emotions and not be controlled by our emotions. So much in our life requires action by ourselves and not just waiting for others to make the right decisions. For instance, you cannot wait for your boss to see the value you provide, you have to find ways to make yourself more visible. Sometimes we have to find ways to be the change we want to see in society. If we want a more decent society, we all have to accept our role in it and hold ourselves accountable while holding others accountable as well. Some people have the latter down but still need to work on the former. Now, let us bring in the rest of the team for a broader discussion. The biggest story by far is the announced plan to merge between the PGA Tour, Live Golf, and the DP Tour with the Saudi Public Investment Fund becoming a premier sponsor of the new combined entity. There is also talk of determining a path for reincorporating players who defected to Live Golf back into the fold as well as considering how to incorporate Team Golf into the PGA model. The formation of Live Golf challenged the status quo of organized golf as we knew it. The league, funded by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, operated tournaments that offered larger purses than what the typical PGA player received and guaranteed players would be seen on the weekends. We are used to seeing poor performers sent packing after their Friday round concludes. Initially, I am not sure how many people thought Live Golf would make a dent in the market. But it did when many notable golfers and past major champions decided to defect, accepting generous contracts and incentives from an organization that claimed it did not generate any revenues in the past two years. In fact Live Golf was reported to have to pay for its own television deal, where they experienced low television ratings by their own release data. The PGA counter-argument to Live Golf was offering bigger purses in some events and framing the competing league as being funded by blood money. It also banned any defector for life. The battle resulted in antitrust lawsuits from players in each league, a pending federal investigation by the Department of Justice, and tension between player factions. Especially now that an active live player won a major event. PGA loyalists now feel slighted with the turnabout. How can an organization claim a competitor is funded with blood money and then merge in a manner where they too will accept the same funding source that they claim was blood money? What is my perspective on this? I think the merger will be good for golf in the long run. I am generally a supporter of competition. 
but I think in sports we want to see the best players compete against each other. Not sure having the sport's great players split between two leagues was good for the long-term viability of the sport. From a competition standpoint, the merger is a good idea. We cannot ignore the controversial aspect about the funding of the league. There are many sports pundits who want to lecture society on moral inconsistencies. I heard the argument that Americans do not have any problems with iPhones being made in China by an enemy nation, buying Saudi energy, or trading with violators of human rights, but we have a problem with a golf league being funded by the public investment fund that is run by a top trading partner. There is a bit of difference here. If you are buying an iPhone, you are paying Apple, an American-based company, who determined its best economic interest is to have a supplier based in the nation of our current diplomatic and economic rival. Nike, also is an American company, doing the same. Live Golf is funded by an investment fund directly managed by people hand-picked by the Saudi leaders. So I cannot fault people for being more upset about this. Because there is a difference between a supplier being located in a nation and an investor being the actual nation. Now, the PGA is allowing funds from that national government to fund its operations in the same manner that it previously found objectionable. There is a difference, despite there being some similarities. Resolving the legal disputes is a win. But not sure if the regulatory agencies that need to approve this merger will back off their position of antitrust. If they thought the PGA response harmed competition, a merger must be viewed as a greater harm. But I think the merger will be good for golf in the long run. There needs to be a real consideration of how to bring back golfers into the organization they left, who have players who do not appear ready to welcome them back with open arms. Obviously, the players loyal to the PGA should have some advantage. The aspect that I take issue with in this debate is the discussion of loyalty. If your coworker received an offer from a competitor in your field that exceeded what your employer is willing to pay them, I think we would expect that person to accept the higher offer and be happy for them that they improved their economic outcome. Should a person forego a higher paycheck or a perceived better situation simply because they worked somewhere else first? Now, I could agree that maybe a person should afford the opportunity for their current employer to match the offer or provide a competing offer. That may be fair. But people should maximize opportunities. That is basic capitalism. And there is nothing wrong with that. But I do agree that loyalty should benefit the golfers that stayed. To the victors come the spoils. Right? Both sides are technically winners. But the live golfers are not in the position of advantage here. They may own shares in franchises that have no real value, but they now will need to have membership reinstated. I do believe that this will be good for the game of golf. And I think league golf may help expand the game as well. Over time, the controversies will dwindle in importance. We know that. While the PGA could have started their own league, sometimes acquiring a solution is better than innovating one yourself. I am very optimistic about the game of golf going forward. This situation is kind of reminiscent of the Monday Night Wars experienced by the professional wrestling industry. Although a more competitive industry, the WWE experienced fierce competition by WCW, which competed for talent and ratings from the market leader. WWE is the clear market leader now, but not so much back then. And WCW actually took brief leadership of the ratings war. But the interesting part of this story is the response by the market leader. The PGA issued lifetime bans to defectors to live. The WWE wished the departing talent all the best. It did not rush to match contracts to a competitor that took members of its roster and ratings as well. Instead, legendary CEO Vince McMahon focused on competing on quality of product, which allowed it to rebound in the ratings never to relinquish its position.
Eventually, the bloated investments taken to entice talent defections and produce a competing product that was no longer commercially viable proved too much for its owner. The lesson is that sometimes the best approach is to wait out and see if the new competitor is commercially viable, which it appears that Liv was not, if it reported no revenues. The game of golf will be stronger in the long run, but there will be a period of time that will be needed to heal the wounds of division and plot a path forward where the brand can recover from the controversies and player conflicts. Money determined that the PGA Tour, Liv Golf, and the DP Tour needed to end their conflict and combine. They could either spend billions fighting each other or make billions merging and providing a combined platform for the greatest golf talent in the world. The first challenge will be to alleviate distrust from players who dislike the turnabout of their leadership. Secondly, the PGA will need to resolve the antitrust reviews from the United States Department of Justice and potentially European Union agencies. And last, it will need to find a marketing campaign that can revive its brand that will take a hit in the near term. While the Saudi government does have a poor record on human rights and is accused of troubling behaviors, Americans should also consider that it has been an important partner in a region where America has few friends outside of Israel. Saudi Arabia is not perfect, but it has always stood by our interests in the region and supported our efforts to rid the world of terrorism. Let us not lose the forest through the trees. The lack of perfection is not the reason to lose a needed partner. This merger needed to happen in my opinion. Liv took too many of the game's top stars. But it was commercially unviable. But the combined entity will open up new opportunities for all sides. Money sometimes tells all sides that it is not worth fighting each other. In this case, it was better to work towards making money for golf than making money for lawyers filing motions. Something may be good for the industry, but still make you uncomfortable about the parties involved. Both sides, the PGA and Liv were not really going to be able to survive in the long term. The PGA was losing too much of the recognizable talent, while people refused to watch live golf it appears. So both organizations were in lose-lose situation. A merger makes sense to protect the long-term prospects of competitive golf. I do think that a league approach to golf can work in the world of golf. The most comparable sport to golf is tennis, which has team tennis. While I agree that Saudi Arabia is an imperfect but important ally to the United States, I am not sold that the PGA should be making its investment fund a premier sponsor and allowing its leader to be the chairman of the combined entity. There is a difference between a supplier located in an enemy nation and an owned entity by that nation. But in all cases I think we need to question how much influence that nation's government exerts in the operations. Is it surprising American CEOs are trying to make nice with the Chinese government, who probably will eventually take actions that harms the intellectual property rights of these multinationals. But I think the PGA could have done this with a more muted role for the investment fund. Even simply for public relations or optics for the combined entity. Can the players on either faction go forward without a change in leadership on the PGA? Can current players really trust the commissioner and will returning players trust him either? I am not sure the level of hypocrisy and secrecy of the situation allows any of the reported leadership to be trusted. How is a merger initiated when the CEO of one of the organizations is only notified minutes before its announcement? Was Greg Norman simply a figurehead without any actual governing responsibility? The merger is the right outcome. Just such a sloppy path to reach that outcome. Let's see if it survives scrutiny. I thank you for experiencing this episode of the Christopher Peter Review. Please continue to visit the Christopher Peter Review at www.crcreview.com.